Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Yasmin, I just started reading the book Atomic Habits. Have you heard of it? I have. People love it. Hasn't it been on like the New York Times bestsellers list for like 10 years or something? It's been on the list for so long. I think the cover says that it's has sold over 4 million copies worldwide, Wow. which is if you're in the world of publishing, that is a huge number. And it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for like I think a maybe, long time, a very long time, like years <laughs> at this point. So I had to see what all the hype was about, of course. So I just started reading it the other day and it's very well written very interesting Mm. but the whole premise so far and I'm only at the beginning so I'll report back is that it's not huge leaps that we make that lead to lasting change it's these kind of tiny habits or tiny changes that we commit to every single day and one thing that he says that I think you and I Yasmin have talked about before is that sometimes people look at somebody who they consider to be an overnight success Mm -hmm. and it's not actually an overnight success. It's that you haven't seen all of the steps that they've taken for sometimes years that lead to this eventual point of success. And so I thought that was really interesting. He talks about this idea of the plateau of Latin potential. And essentially, we need to get through those initial very hard stages of making a change where we feel like we're not necessarily making progress, even though we wanted to make progress very quickly. We have to get through that valley of disappointment and just keep going, like keep pushing. And then we get to that point where whatever we wanted to implement in our lives just becomes second nature, or we are finally able to run that mile, or we're finally able to make healthy eating, lasting change in our lives. And I thought this book was so relevant to this week's episode because we talk about the importance of daily habits and why we need to stick to certain things every single day to make them a part of our lives. And it got me thinking and wondering, Yasmin, what's something in your daily routine that might have seemed really challenging at first, but now has become second nature because you just stuck with it? Ugh, that's a good question. Actually, Kaya, another, I initially was thinking about talking about sleep, but one thing that you said which I think is really fascinating, that valley of disappointment, right? Like anything that you start that's unique or different, it's going to be so tough until it becomes second nature. And one thing that I think I'm maybe on the upward trend of the valley of disappointment right now in my life is movement. I think I've really dialed in my sleep, but one thing that has been lacking for years is movement, which I'm really embarrassed to say, but it's true. And I recently started strength training, honestly, from these interviews after we've interviewed like 10, like 20 women who say how important that is. I'm like, all right, I got to get my shit together because I want to live long. I want to feel good. And I can't tell you, Kaya, how many times I'd be going to a class and I'm like, this is the last thing I want to do. And then I go there and with strength training, I've never really done that before. So I'm not good at it. I'm using these muscles that I've never used before. It's like a very foreign and humbling experience for me. And every time I wanted to go, it was like I had such a resistance. But anytime I'd finish it, I'm like, oh, I actually feel really energized. I feel good. So now I think a few months in, I'm finally at the point, probably at the top of the valley. I'm less disappointed and it's becoming more second nature because I'm feeling how great 
great I feel. And I'm so motivated. And, and especially like outside of feeling stronger, I think my mental health is better. I mean, even my husband, who's your brother, Drew, he's like, when you have movement, I definitely feel like, you know, I regularly sometimes get a little overwhelmed with work sometimes. And when I'm incorporating more movement, I definitely feel a lot more grounded and stable, which is awesome. And just to have somebody else reflect that back on me is amazing. So yeah, that's just one thing I'm, I'm still working on and moving through, but it's definitely a, getting to the point of becoming more second nature because I'm feeling better mentally, physically. So now I know why so many people just talk about how important movement is and just getting and feeling stronger. I absolutely love that, Yasmin. And one area that a lot of people struggle in, in addition to movement, is also food. And this episode is all about food as medicine and how to use our every single day habits to create lifelong health and lifelong change with our dear friend, Bridget. Bridget is a functional medicine, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and health advocate who's on a mission to transform your health and change your life through personalized nutrition. Throughout her career, she's worked with over 4,000 clients. She founded the functional nutrition and health consulting company, Being Bridget Nutrition, to offer consistent health outcomes for her executive clients by leveraging a data-driven personalized nutrition approach, advanced lab testing, education, and coaching. Bridget has published numerous articles for Cleveland Health Essential. Mind Body Green, The Chalkboard Mag, U.S. News and World Report, and The Huffington Post. And right now she has an amazing blood sugar reset program, which is available to anyone who is looking to reclaim their health. We'll link all the details in the show notes. Now let's get into the episode. So Bridget, what's really fascinating to me about so many people who are in health and wellness is that often it's their own journey that brings them to help other people. And you have such a, I don't want to use a word fascinating because I'm sure it was a lot at the moment, but it taught you a lot, but you have such an interesting health journey that kind of brought you to where you are today. So I'm wondering if you could take us back to when you were a kid and what was going on then that led you to the space of functional medicine? Perfect. It is a fascinating story. And I would say that, you know, so many times for entrepreneurs or people in health and wellness, that it's like your lowest point is also your biggest determining point that determines the trajectory of your career and of your life and what you're devoting uh, your life to. And that was definitely the case for me. So I started this entire journey on the patient side in 2004 when I was a teenager and I was falling asleep every second of every day, uh, was not able to stay awake for anything. I was sitting up, eating and sleeping at the same time with my eyes open. I would be in the middle of conversations and sleeping. It's a strange thing to, to wrap your brain around. And then I was having about 30 mini seizures a day. So I ended up being diagnosed with narcolepsy with cataplexies, which is a Auto, a neurological autoimmune condition where my brain is essentially attacking the orexin that I produce that impacts my, my alertness and my ability to stay awake on my own. So the, the diagnosis was you have narcolepsy, it's a genetic disease, the doctor pulls out the prescription pad and is like, here's the drugs that you're going to take and that's the rest of your life. It's going to get worse as you age and you'll need to continue to increase your dose as you go on. You have the highest stage of narcolepsy based on the sleep scans that you did and you know we're sending you on your way. And I was only 15 at the time, so my parents were super skeptical about me just 
settling for a medication without understanding why I was having it. Even though they said it was genetic, we had no one in my family who had it. And at the time, they didn't know that there was an autoimmune component to Mm -hmm. narcolepsy when you have cataplexy that's been discovered in the last three years. So I think that, you know, I was fortunate enough to have parents who aren't in medicine, but have enough common sense to know that sometimes patients need more answers, especially when it's your child's going on medication for the rest of their life. And especially with very few long-term, basically no long-term studies to show the safety or efficacy of that. And just trying to understand why is this happening to her? Why are the symptoms happening? How can we change her diet and lifestyle to help to support her? And so that was really the road that we went on um, against the recommendations of my conventional neurologist who actually refused to continue seeing me. He was Mm -hmm. the only pediatric neurologist in the department at the time. So then we were pushed forward to the adult neurologist that I started seeing at the age of 15. And I just wanted to take the drugs. I was like, saying to my parents, you guys aren't in medicine. You are not doctors. Why are you questioning what the doctor's telling us? I just want to take the medicine. I'm so miserable. You don't know what you're talking about. And they, you know, still took me to this functional medicine doctor who ended up running extensive testing on me to look at nutrient deficiencies, leaky gut, um, the picture of my gut microbiome. And it really changed my life, but it took, you know, months and years of continuing to implement and tweak and refine to be able to get to the point that I'm at today where I I still take medication, um, but I actually have not been taking medication for the last several uh, months of, you know, with having my baby. And um, I do think now having a child has helped me see how important it is to to ask questions when you are in a younger age and you're diagnosed with something so that you have the time to prepare your body for fertility and for being able to support having a child if you have an autoimmune condition or something else so that you're able to try to do it with as little of medication as possible. I'm super, super fortunate for that. And one other layer that I would just add in since this is hormone happy hour is that while I was going through that process, I also was seeing a OBGYN and a dermatologist because I was having debilitating cramping and pain um, Mm -hmm. and also had horrible acne at the time. And the doctors had put me on birth control, of course, who's not prescribed birth control to just put the bandaid over all the symptoms that you're experiencing. And I was about 17 when I went on birth control and then I completely lost my cycle. And I remember saying to the doctor, like, this feels really unnatural to not have a cycle. And she was like, don't worry. It's the best case scenario when you're on birth control. And so I took birth control for probably about a year and was like, this doesn't feel right. Just doesn't feel like it's the right thing. But looking back, I wish that I had known to to connect all these dots with my functional medicine doctor to be like, why am I seeing all these different experts who are trying to put me on these different medications without connecting? Like, how are your hormones and your neurological function in this autoimmune condition all connected? Like, can we look even deeper at your microbiome? Can we look at your blood sugar balance and those sorts of things so that I could have expedited the healing process instead of it taking 10 years to to really feel like I had confidence in, in my plan and feeling like I had succeeded in 
reversing my cataplexies and not having any seizures and to, and being able to have regular cycles and those sorts of things that took a really long time to be able to get to. Oh my gosh. There's so many things that resonate with me, you know, similar to your upbringing I had, and it just goes back to the importance of questioning things. That's really what I want to underscore, but I was younger. I was just talking about this with my mom that I had this rash and the doctor wanted to put me on some antibiotics. I was also 15 and she's like, God, there's all these side effects. Like, I don't want to do it. And she was saying that the internet was like very new at the time. So she was just like Googling different things to do. And she ended up giving me supplements, like totally not listening to the doctor. And I ended up being fine with the rash. And I remember the pediatrician called me in her room and said, I don't want your doctor in there. Cause she thought maybe my doctor was like abused, you know, not take going down the conventional route and um, not putting me in the right place, if that's the right way to say it. But I love that your family was kind of questioning. And you know, one thing that you've mentioned, obviously we're familiar with functional medicine, but what is that? And you know, for anyone who's listening, who's like, okay, I'm going through something, but Bridget, like, what is functional medicine? Is this something that I can look into? Yeah. So I would say that my story is the story of tens of thousands of other people, right? It's why I enjoy telling it because there's so many factors when you go through a conventional path that can feel so disheartening when you feel like you're not being listened to and you're not being understood and no one's looking deeper. And that's why functional medicine is such an amazing field for patients to be able to have access to at an accelerated rate right now, because we know that, you know, internet searches for functional medicine are up by tens of thousands of times compared to what they were even 10 years ago. And the profession is increasing significantly with more doctors and more nurse practitioners recognizing that this really is the way that medicine should be conducted. It's a root cause approach, looking at asking why, thinking about the unique individual on a biochemical level, knowing that you know, nutrition is not one size fits all. Medicine is not one size fits all. We know this based on even genetic data looking at, you know, if you were to give two patients a statin drug, their response to it is going to be completely different. Or even in the mental health space, this is a very well acknowledged idea that different people are going to be either non-responders or responders to certain psychiatric medications. And so psychologists or psychiatrists need to make those recommendations for the prescriptions based on the unique individual and their own biochemistry. And that's really the essence of functional medicine is thinking about it on an individual basis, thinking back to the root cause, why are you having these symptoms? Instead of just putting a Band-Aid approach over it, saying, here's the prescription pad, here's the prescription that you're going to be on for the rest of your life. And oh, by the way, we're going to add five other medications for all these things that are happening instead of trying to ask like, well, why are you having anxiety and PMS symptoms and migraines and bloating all at the same time? Could it be because you have one or two imbalances or dysfunctions that are creating uh, the cascade or manifestation of many symptoms that are happening at once? Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless 
effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia, and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com, and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back to today's episode. So, you know, you mentioned something that functional medicine is amazing because every person is unique and it allows to build a roadmap for that person. In your situation, which could have been a debilitating lifelong issue that could have really impacted the way that you lived your life and the way you learned and your relationships, food as medicine was a big part of that. It wasn't the whole picture, but it was a big part of that. And I'd love for you to kind of dive into what specifically you changed about your diet at the time that was really impactful. Yeah, I would say that food is absolutely our greatest medicine. It impacts every single cell in the body. And when you're able to stop thinking about the connection between food and weight, and you're able to see the ways that it impacts the body on such a more in-depth level that in many ways impact your life so much more than your weight, it becomes something that isn't like, oh, maybe I'll try this sometimes and then get off track. Maybe I'll, I'll be in sometimes and then I get off. It's like if you care about your life and you care about respecting yourself and allowing your body to function in the most capable and optimal way, you have to be invested in using food as medicine. There's there's just no way around it. You can't feed your body ultra processed foods and then expect to have the mental clarity to to work and perform at your best and then to also, you know, be a present wife and mom and partner and then also be able to, you know, impact your friends and your family members and be there for them. It's just food impacts all of those things. It impacts the way that you show up for your life. And that was, you know, my greatest takeaway from from my own personal experience. And now I've worked with more than 10,000 clients where I've seen the exact same thing, whether it's at the Cleveland Clinic or uh, in shared medical appointments that we're running or in my own nutrition business where, you know, we've had tens of thousands of people go through some of our nutrition programs and we get on a daily basis the most incredible emails and messages from people saying how much their lives have been changed. And for me, it came down to removing gluten as the number one most important thing. Anytime that I still have gluten to this day, I can start to feel the onset of of a cataplexy, which are the mini seizures that I used to experience about 30 per day. So that is likely stemming from the impacts that gluten can have on the lining of the gut. And uh, the impact that the gut brain axis can have with the onset of neurological symptoms. So most people don't realize that the second most common symptom outside of digestive issues from eating gluten is neurological issues, uh, whether that's brain fog or fatigue. Of course, on a more exacerbated level, I experience you know more of the neurological narcolepsy symptoms and, and the cataplexies. So removing gluten was definitely the most important. Um, it took me about five years to become 100% diligent with that because I'd still say like, oh, I can have a pizza every once in a while when I was in college and my friends are eating college. And it wasn't until I was like, it, there is no amount of pizza or pasta that is worth it for me to eat 
if I want to not feel this way. And getting to that point was a huge shift and it took me many years. The second thing that I would say is just eating whole foods in general, trying to not eat any ultra processed foods. I really try not to do that um, very often at all. And then I was fortunate enough to come across the importance of blood sugar very early on um, when I was working at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute. And the doctors there were talking about how blood sugar was basically everything. And being able to better understand pairing proteins, fats, and to carbohydrates and, and fiber together really changed so much of my energy. It created much more stable levels of energy that um, has changed drastically. And then I would also say that focusing on sleep hygiene, I know that it's not necessarily mo as much nutrition related, but taking magnesium at night before bed, trying to make sure that I'm, you know, like adopting the circadian cycle so that I'm able to control my circadian rhythm in the most optimal way, because when you have narcolepsy, it's like the focus is on stimulants and trying to keep you awake, but most doctors aren't focused on optimizing your sleep. And most people that have narcolepsy also can't sleep well at night. And that's the reason that they're able to fall into REM so quickly during the day. So trying to take the backwards approach to say like, how can I support my sleep in the best, most optimal way made a huge, huge difference. And then um, I would also say not drinking coffee. That was one of the number one recommendations that my neurologist had made early on was like, you should start drinking coffee. And so I started and I realized about five years in that coffee was making me very wired and then very tired in the afternoon where it was hard to get through the rest of the day. So that wasn't something that I cut out until I was working in functional medicine for Dr. Hyman and recommending to so many patients that they should stop drinking coffee that I personally tried it for Lent one year. And I was like, whoa, this is a game changer to switch to matcha um, for, for more stable and steady energy throughout the day. So that's made an enormous difference as well. You said something so interesting about how it took you five years to be completely gluten-free. And I think that one of the hardest things for people to wrap their heads around is that health is not a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And especially somebody who has like celiac disease or some sort of food allergy or food intolerance, how do you help your clients reframe this idea that it's not like, hey, 21 days or 30 days to stay off of this particular thing. It's more like sometimes this has to be a lifelong shift and to get into that mentality can be really challenging for people like, oh, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life, but it can be so empowering and game changing. So how do you help people do that? So I think that it depends on the person where for some people, they just need to heal their gut with short term elimination diets of removing foods that are causing more inflammation, work on repairing their gut so that then they're able to tolerate some foods in small amounts moving forward if it's gluten or dairy. That's not the case for everyone. I've definitely seen enough individuals to know that some people are going to be best served being 100% gluten-free or 100% dairy-free or removing other foods that are issues for them on a much longer term basis. And that's pretty depressing to accept. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of rationalizing that we do in our brains to be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, other people can handle it. So why am I being so sensitive? Maybe I'm overthinking this. And then usually a person's doctor is telling them, you don't need to change your diet. There's no correlation. You know, I recently was working with someone that had Crohn's disease who said that for the last 10 years, she's seen the top GI specialist 
in all of medicine and her parents have taken her into these appointments all over the US. And in every appointment, they ask these GI doctors, should we remove gluten from her diet? And every single one of them were like, no, she needs to keep weight on. Removing any foods from her diet is going to be a bad idea. And just within three weeks of removing gluten from her diet, her rash started going away that she had. Her GI symptoms started to become less debilitating. And her mom said to me, you know, we've been injecting steroids into her every single month for the last 10 years with her never getting better, only continually getting worse with all these GI doctors saying, no, you don't need to remove gluten. And in three weeks, we end up doing it. And she's transforming her health in such a short period of time. So I think that when you hear a lot of noise from conventional medicine, who are, you know, the, the quote unquote, like experts and the people that you need to be listening to, that that makes it even harder to understand or accept the idea of removing a food that's a trigger for you long-term. So I, I usually use the food feedback loop with clients where they're able to incorporate a food into their diet, like let's say dairy, they think is an issue for them. So the more that they're able to identify, okay, I'm just going to have ice cream and then let me observe the symptoms that I'm experiencing. And then let me observe how many days it takes me to come back from that. And then let me observe how I feel emotionally about the decision to have dairy. It, I think becomes less and less frequent that you make the justification to have it because every time that you have it, you feel so bad about yourself that you're like, okay, I'm not going to do this for another three months. And then you might make it three months. And then the next time it's like six months and then you have it and you're like, I wish so badly I didn't do that. Like, when am I going to learn? And so you, the pain has to be high enough that it makes it rationalized in your brain to be like, I am never intentionally doing this to myself again as a form of self-respect. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about staying up late. I'm like, <laughs> nope. That is like my big pain point. I will suffer for like a month after if I don't get, if I have like one really poor night of quality sleep. And it's so true. If you struggle with that so much that it interferes with your life, then you're like, I'm never doing that. But so many people don't know how bad they feel until they start to feel good. So that's why it's really nice to have these periods of time where we maybe do like a 21 day thing or like a 30 day thing. So you're like, I'm actually feeling really good. Like, how do I keep feeling this way? So I love that you get to do that with people. hundred percent. I would also say that alcohol was a big one for me that that process had to happen of like, okay, I am not going to get myself to the point of like drinking too much that I feel so horrible the next day that, you know, it became like every six months that that would happen. And then once a year that that would happen. And it was like, I had to just really reminisce in the pain to be like, yeah. I cannot do this to myself ever again. And what I love about what both you guys have said, because this took me a long time to associate, is like being mindful of what is going on in your body. Because there's so many times if I don't sleep and I'm like, God, like what's wrong with me? Did I eat something? And my, maybe my husband will remind me, oh, like you were tossing and turning. You did not sleep last night. But I love, Bridget, how you kind of have that food diary because so much of that connection we're sometimes not even aware of. And then even through that, it still takes time to like create those habits. And it took me like two years to finally be in the space that I am now. But that mindfulness, I feel like 
is so, so key. So I love that recommendation. And to Kaya's point, I think too, that it's a lifelong journey. And so to expect yourself to master it in the first week or the first month, or even the first year is completely unrealistic. Like I've been on this journey for more than 17 years and I'm still continuing to tweak and refine things and and learn from my body. And I also want to just emphasize how different life cycles change what you need as well. And so you might think that you really have it nailed down and then you get pregnant or that, you know, you think that you've really optimized your health during pregnancy and then you're postpartum. And so during different phases, those are going to change your needs as well. And so being able to be adaptable and flexible and attentive to what your body needs um, and giving yourself that grace of knowing that you're not going to nail it overnight is so important because I think that people give up too quickly on themselves when they haven't perfected it. And it's like, you don't need to be perfect. You just need to keep showing up for yourself. You know, that's really at the end of the day, what it is, it's just about consistency rather than perfection and giving yourself that grace to know that no one's nailing it overnight. Yes, it's so true. I love that. And especially for women, right? Because we are constantly going through different cycles. Like we cycle through every month and then we have the different cycles of our life of like our reproductive years or being pregnant or postpartum or perimenopause and menopause. I remember my sister, she told me yesterday actually that she was talking to somebody and they like somebody that she works out with or somebody at her gym and they said i don't get my period anymore like i just i I went on birth control i don't even deal with that stuff and i was like it reminded me of what you said earlier where your doctor was like oh this is best case scenario you're on birth control you don't get a period like you should be so happy and it makes me really sad when i hear people say things like that because our period is now they're saying it should be considered a vital sign because the health of our cycles is so crucial i'm curious you know how your health journey shifted and evolved and how you applied it to your fertility journey yeah when you just said that um it, it made me think of being in an OBGYN appointment about two years ago, we got pregnant and then I miscarried about eight weeks into the pregnancy. And actually it was a missed miscarriage, which I didn't know was a thing until I had listened to a podcast of one of my friends who was talking about her missed miscarriage experience. So we went in for the eight week appointment and we had no heartbeat on the ultrasounds, but I hadn't miscarried yet. So we thought there was going to be a baby at that eight week appointment. And I just walking out of that appointment was the most one of the most devastating moments of um, my life. And I waited about a month to miscarry on my own and it ended up not happening. So then I was scheduled for a DNC and got the DNC and had a post-op appointment with the OBGYN. And I had asked her to run hormone testing, knowing that low progesterone levels was a primary cause of infertility or not being able to carry a pregnancy to term. And she she said, no, we don't do hormone testing. There, there would be no reason for that. Just once you get back to having a cycle, you can start trying again. And you know, this just happens by chance. It's very common. There's nothing that, that you can do about it and make sure that you're not blaming yourself. And so of course that, that didn't sit well with me because I started pressing into her saying, well, you know, I, I had an appointment and I know I told you this before the DNC, um, but I had an appointment with the, a PA and was telling her about how I have this debilitating pain that I've been experiencing sometimes during my cycle since I was 15. And it's in the past caused me to nearly pass out several times because of how painful it is and how much I'm profusely sweating. It feels like that's not normal. Should we test for endometriosis? I first asked my doctor at 16 if I should be tested for endometriosis and she said no. 
here's birth control. Um, you know, endometriosis is too invasive of a procedure for us to be able to actually diagnose you with. And so I, I asked the doctor and she was like, no, I don't think so. And I said, so what, what would you suggest for when I'm having the, the pain leading up to my cycle? Because it's exacerbated by exercise. And that's when I feel like I'm passing out. And she was like, why don't you just not exercise on the days that you know that your cycle is coming so that you can avoid it? And I was like, but my cycle isn't actually happening at the same time every month. It's not on a 28 day cycle. So how would I, how am I going to know that? And she was like, well, does walking cause it? And I said, no, and it's really just running or cycling. And she was like, so then just walk for, you know, the 10 days that you know that you're going to be around the time of your cycle. It would be no different than if you were having knee pain that was being exacerbated by, by exercise, your, your joint specialist would tell you to just stop exercising. And I was like, don't you think the joint specialist would responsibly try to figure out why the joint pain is happening to begin with instead of telling a person to just stop exercising? And so it was an extremely frustrating appointment. And I, after she left the room, I just started crying, thinking about how many women would accept what she told me without pushing back, without questioning, without looking for a second opinion. And just knowing that that's the, that's what women are being told in conventional medicine. And I don't want to paint this picture. That that's what's happening in every situation, but I just have to believe that if this is what's happening to me off of, you know, like a one-time instance of trying to ask a question, it has to be happening fairly regularly across the board. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially you being able to push back to ask the right questions and still being met with like, don't even ask these questions. Like this is ridiculous. There's other people who are not even empowered enough to speak up. And the fact that they wouldn't even run your hormones, like Everybody in the world at this point knows that you need hormones to create a baby and to sustain the baby's life. So um, it it really makes me very sad, especially in cases where they tell people like, oh, you have unexplained infertility. We can't explain. I know. You're like, what? It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. I completely agree. It's It's so disheartening that that is the experience of so many women. So I do think that it's important to always get a second opinion and to, to be an advocate for your own health, even if it feels uncomfortable. We have clients of ours just even like practice what they're going to say to their doctors before the appointment so that they can go in feeling like, okay, here's my list of questions that I have outlined and they've you know rehearsed it a few times so they don't feel as intimidated because unfortunately in medicine, it's like the experience is that as the patient, you aren't the client that has the ability to, to demand the services or the information that, that you think is the most essential. You're made to feel like you aren't the expert and you don't know the most. So this is, this is the path that I think that you need to go down. And there's no conversation around how we can meet in the middle. It's not like hiring an accountant where you tell the accountant the information that you want to know, and then the accountant gets it for you because you're paying them. And so I think that, you know, the more that an, I don't want to dismiss the importance of conventional medicine either. And I'm not anti-science or medicine. I teach, you know, graduate and medical students about integrative and functional medicine every single fall semester. I think that it's just always important for us to question how we can be doing better and to identifying some of the deficiencies that do exist so that patients feel like they're being taken care of um, in a much more comprehensive way than they currently are. But um, I ended up going to a naturopath after my OBGYN told me that she wouldn't run my hormones and my progesterone levels were 
so low that um, I ended up being prescribed progesterone. And then I did a few other supplements and nutrition interventions to try to help to increase my progesterone. Um, I had cortisol imbalances. And so all of that can absolutely impact your ability to, to carry a child. So being able to do more investigative work is 100% okay. If you're the person that has to live with the consequences of your body being dysfunctional. I love that. And I think Bridget, and I appreciate you being so open about your journey and you now have a beautiful baby. So it's so amazing to see that, you know, you were able to stabilize your hormones, have a very healthy baby. And it just shows the importance of digging deeper when you can. And you mentioned, you know, you also had, we have a lot of women at BIA who reach out to us who also have low progesterone. Even if you're not trying to conceive, it could really impact so many things like mood. And I'm sure you guys both are a lot more um, familiar with that. But maybe what are some of the foods that you were recommended that you were kind of implementing more in your life to kind of naturally support that progesterone level? So I really increased my magnesium and that um, I think just helped to regulate my, my central nervous system. The number one cause of depleted progesterone levels is stress. And so magnesium can help to offset the stress response. And also in addition to that, thinking about magnesium rich foods like pumpkin seeds, dark chocolate, chia seeds, the seeds that are of course incorporated into BIA um, provide a great level of magnesium. And then I also really incorporated a lot of deep breathing practices, tried to be more diligent with the stress reduction side of things that can oftentimes feel so benign that it's like, how can this actually be that significant? But I think that so often we're looking for this like huge supplement protocol or something that seems so much more significant than some of the basics when it comes to hormone health. But you can be taking all the supplements in the world to support your hormones. If you aren't addressing stress, it literally shuts down your ovarian production of hormones. So I think that, you know, for me, being able to try to incorporate more breaks, get more sunlight exposure throughout my day, do more deep breathing, um, even just like putting reminders on my steering wheel and at my desk to incorporate more deep breathing exercises uh, really was the thing that I focused on the most. So you're now in the um, postpartum period. And for me, that was probably, and I'm, and I'm still in that period now, my daughter's going to be two and thinking about another baby soon. But the period of time after having a baby, and I'm still going through it now, has been one of the most interesting periods of my life because all of the things that worked for me before having a baby are not working for me quite the same. So the sleepless nights, the putting, you know, somebody else first, the lack of like proper meals, all of that have taken such a toll on my body. So I'm like starting from scratch again to like support myself and, you know, get everything tested and look at like my cortisol is so low and everything. So it's been such an interesting time for me specifically. I'm curious how you've been supporting your body postpartum because personally, I found it to be like one of the hardest things that I've gone through. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that overall, when I'm asked the question, like, how's everything going from a high level, things are going great. Like we're lucky to have a baby that sleeps the night, like I was just telling you guys. And I feel like day to day, I'm, you know, like super ingrained in my work and to trying to like build out a new program that we're launching later this year. And I'm just kind of like on, I like haven't stopped to even just think about it. Um, but then there are times that I do stop and think about it and I'm like, if I stopped long enough, I'd probably be crying all the time because it is hard. I mean, it's like, 
a few of my friends um, from Florida texted me the other day to ask how I was. And I was just like in a very vulnerable moment where I responded and I was like, well, we're living out of boxes. We're in an Airbnb. We're navigating a move cross country. We, we have McKinley. Johnny's traveling for work. My business is exploding. Like, I mean, it's all great things, but it's so overwhelming. And I feel like, you know, I just stopped breastfeeding last last week, which is a major guilt factor for me, but it was something that I just like couldn't sustain with the narcolepsy. And then also like the stress, I think actually, you know, I'm, I'm constantly falling into the stress issue of, of not incorporating stress reducing practices enough as one of the biggest areas of opportunity for me. And so like the guilt associated with that, I like, it keeps me up at night and thinking about, you know, like my body even feeling just like a, a foreign place right now. Um, I, I don't feel like comfortable in my body right now. And my my hair feels like it's starting to fall out a little. And then I'm on the on social media and it feels like everyone that I follow is postpartum and they're all like doing amazing where it's like they they're like doing it all. And I'm like, gosh, what are you doing that I'm not doing when I know all these things? And so I think that sometimes it's like, no matter how much you know about nutrition, you know, Kay, you've been in the nutrition space for so long. I've been in the nutrition space for so long. We know everything that there is to know about the things to be doing. And sometimes it's like not practical in certain seasons of life and you have to just be doing the best that you can. And I just rely so much on these like micro times where I can like, I, I just this past month did a challenge of like doing a hundred pushups a day, a hundred squats a day and a hundred sit-ups a day. And so there was times that I'd like be trying to just get McKinley to bed. And then finally I get her to bed. And so I'm like next to her bassinet, like doing my pushups on the floor <laughs> at like 1030. It was the last thing that I wanted to do, but just those small things helped me feel more like myself. And like, I was trying to work back to like rebuilding the body and the brain and the lifestyle that I'm used to. It's so true. And when you were talking, it just made me feel that pregnancy and then going through labor is like, it's like going to war or something, right? It's like our bodies are being put through war is not the right thing, but like a marathon or, or a triathlon, like our bodies are put through so much and we women are so hard on ourselves to like bounce back and to, you know, look the way that we used to look or feel the way that we used to feel versus like actually sitting down and taking the time to be like, I went through something major and I need to support my body after that and give my body love and do stress management and do all the things that I need to do to like replenish because it can be so depleting. So yeah, I'm, I, I really appreciate you saying all of that for sure. It's so depleting. I mean, I appreciate you saying that because I definitely think that to I consistently remind myself now that if, if you could get through labor, you can get through this. That's like my mindset <laughs> um, because yeah, I agree. I think that to, I, I honestly thought that the hardest part was just going to be to get through nine months of pregnancy. And I had no idea that it's as long of a journey as it is that you don't feel like yourself. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Well, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about because you've worked with so many people, your boots on the ground, like working with people, to change their health day to day. What are some of the biggest things that you see that people do daily? Just small things, maybe insidious things that you feel like these things are actually sabotaging people's health. Yeah. Little things. The first one I would say is, is the thoughts that you allow yourself to think. 
are probably the most common that I see, especially in women that continue to sabotage their ability to be consistent with their nutrition uh, and them telling themselves that, you know, if they have always struggled with their weight, that they will always struggle with their weight. Or if it, they always have the energy slumps in the middle of the day, that it's like, this is just how they're made. And this is how what they need to accept. Or, you know, things like that, they are just always going to have no willpower or the negative self-talk, I think is probably the most underlying consistent self-sabotaging behavior that I see that uh, if most people realized if they just worked on their mindset that it would drastically change the way that they're able to fuel themselves on a consistent basis. Um, I would say that another one would be just the amount of caffeine that a person's consuming throughout the day and being like, oh, what's what's one more coffee to get me through the afternoon or what's, you know, two coffees in the morning going to hurt? And I do think that over time that, you know, too much caffeine, especially in a more stressful, especially if you have a lot of stress or you are, have a lot of things that you're managing, um, that it creates just an, an additional bucket, it fills the stress bucket just a little bit more that makes it harder to regulate your central nervous system. And when you think about your central nervous system, it's important to think about, you know, that's really the essence of healing. And so that's why when I say that it's the biggest area of opportunity for me, mm -hmm. I feel like it is so important. And it is also so hard at the same exact time. Yeah. And so if you are a person that struggles with the stress management side, you want to make sure that you're not just, you know, like adding in that additional cup of coffee, adding in that additional glass of wine that creates the additional stress toll on your body that makes it harder for you to regulate your central nervous system and activate more of that parasympathetic nervous system response. So skipping meals would be the other one that I would say is most common and definitely self-sabotaging. I know that it's not easy when you're you know, going from thing to thing, but even just putting a little bit of thought and intention into what your meals are going to look like the, the night before, trying to think about like where am I going to get my, my three meals for the day so that I can decrease the likelihood of falling into that hypoglycemic state where I'm willing to eat anything in sight. And I'm also increasing my cortisol levels that, you know, are creating an additional stress response and is going to make it much harder for you to regulate the food choices that you're making for the rest of the day. Those are such good ones. And I, the reason I say that is because they're three that I can relate to. I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. And I think so many other people can relate to them too, for sure. I love that. And I think like what I really relate to is a stretch stress management piece. I'm always thinking about how do I calm myself throughout the day? Like similar to you, Bridget, like breath work has been really key for me. Two things that also I feel like have helped me a lot. And this was actually my acupuncturist telling me this. She's like, maybe don't do those like intense Pilates. Like I stopped doing HIIT workouts a long time ago because she's like, do something a little bit slower. And I'm like, should I really do that? And ever since I kind of stopped pushing myself, just because my nervous system is already quite heightened, like I need to do things in my life that's a little bit more calming, but that was game changing. And the one thing that you mentioned a few times in our interview is coffee. I actually, we had an interview yesterday with our medical advisor and she brought up coffee. And I'm like, man, I think it's actually making me more wired than I already naturally am. So I'm gonna cut that out. So I love that you did that in your own journey and saw a huge difference and also with your patients. So those are just three things that make it big. And you know, at VIA, we see so many women who email us and they're like, you know, I for some reason lost my period and I'll ask them about life. And they're like, oh, I'm going through a really tough change. I'm moving, something happened to my husband. And it's just a good reminder of like, everyone deals with stress. So how can we just create tools to help us manage? And I just love that you've 
brought that up because it's so core to so many people, um, probably who are listening as well. And I think that um, that the the workout piece is so huge too. Trying to to not do a ton of high intensity interval training and to trying to incorporate more like walking and intentional movements that isn't spiking your heart rate so high. Obviously, there are benefits to that happening um, sometimes, but it's definitely not something that I would recommend doing every day. Um, and like Kaya said, there's such a natural desire to want to just bounce back as quickly as you can, especially postpartum. And it's like the time that it's even a worse idea to try to, you know, like really push through those exercises that are going to get you back into to the shape that you want to get into. But you might also be sacrificing your hormones and your progesterone at the same time. Absolutely. Well, Bridget, we love everything that you're up to and we want people to be able to get to work with you in some capacity. So tell us about your, um, is it your blood sugar course? Like how can people get access to it? What's it all about? So our blood sugar reset, we're launching in November and it's a 10 day program where we send out low glycemic recipes and 10 days of meal plans that have a shopping list and then all the instructions for how to, to plan the meals the weekend before so that then it takes less than 20 minutes to assemble or prepare all the meals for, for the 10 days. So um, you can find out more about it. I'll send you guys a link. But I, I would highlight too that this was a big thing in working working with a lot of people using continuous glucose monitors is that you can stabilize your blood sugar while still incorporating carbohydrates into your diet. And that is one thing that I wish that I hadn't had to learn the hard way um, because it was like back in 2017 that I was teaching a diabetes shared medical appointment at the Cleveland Clinic that I created. And these people were seeing amazing outcomes with completely decreasing their carbohydrate intake. It was basically like a ketogenic plan. They had incredible outcomes with reversing their diabetes, with losing weight. And I was like, oh, if they're seeing benefit, maybe I could see benefit with my narcolepsy because of the neurological benefits that the ketogenic diet has shown. And it was one of the most taxing things that I've done to my body. And it took me so long to get back from, from doing that combined with high intensity exercise in conjunction with each other. And so I wish long ago that I had learned that you can incorporate carbohydrates into your meals and that you don't have to be afraid of them in order to still have adequate blood sugar control. So that's something that we try to incorporate into our recipes for the blood sugar reset is, you know, trying to balance out the amount of whole food carbohydrates that you're incorporating, like your butternut squash or your sweet potatoes or um, your lentil pastas or other things like that, so that you're able to still experience the benefits from an energy and cravings and mood and hormonal standpoint of blood sugar control without feeling like you're, you know, eating 50 carbohydrates a day. Well, I love that. I'm going to sign up and I'm pretty sure we all went through the same thing in 2017 where we just <laughs> cut out carbs completely. That was, all, that was like the thing at that time. Um, and it didn't work out for most of us. So here we are today being more balanced. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you for having me.